Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. series that we've been in, I guess, for a little over a month now, and it's a sermon series called Asking for a Friend. And in each of these weeks of this series, we're looking at a, a, the reality is a very challenging question, a a question that likely, if you're a person of faith, challenges you. You may have wrestled this with these questions and come to a, a response and a conclusion on your own, or it may be the kind of question that you haven't even been able to wrap your head fully around. You're saying yes by faith, but you're not really sure even how to respond. It's a kind of question that people who maybe who are not people of faith see as a barrier to faith. One of the reasons why they, they couldn't say yes to Christianity or maybe it's to any faith system at all. So along the way, we've been looking at, at questions like the relationship uh, of science and reason and faith. We've looked at, at the reality of, the, of absolute truth We've looked at the exclusive claims of Jesus and Christianity. We've talked about the problem of suffering. We even asked the question, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? I mean, these are the questions that we've been engaging in. And my desire with this is to offer a response that can stimulate further thinking, exploration, and then conversation amongst one another, as well as with those people in your life who also has these kinds of questions hopefully to equip you for better conversations where we can learn and grow together. And so this evening, we're going to jump into another question. But before we do, um, over the last couple days, uh, I was working on our lawn tractor because um, I got to the point where it would only turn right. I could never get it to turn left. And it would click and click and click and uh, that couldn't happen. And so I ended up to turn left. I had to make, you know, a a 25 point K turn to get myself finally going the direction that I wanted to go. And so the reason for that is actually, let me show you this picture that we've got here. Uh, The reason was this. This was the main steering gear. It's got another gear that connects to the steering wheel that when you turn it, you know, the gears are supposed to be like teeth that interact with each other. And this was the one that was supposed to catch the teeth from the steering wheel. Well, what do you, what's the problem? Its dentures are out. Like, there, there's just no teeth there. They just had broken right off in the course of use, and so there was nothing for the gear to actually grab onto, and so it would only turn the one direction that had the teeth, and you can see that was starting to wear down. And so I needed to replace this gear. Well, here's the problem. I didn't know how to do that. And so I did what most of us probably do these days. I went to YouTube because you can learn all sorts of things on YouTube and you put in, you know, what you want to find out and you can watch video after video after video. The problem is which video can you trust? Can you, can you trust the, the rusty squirrel garage guy? Or can you, you trust Billy who's in, you know, I don't know where, but clearly somewhere in Alabama but in his backyard, I think. Like, who, who do you trust and why? And you end up watching the video, and I'm like, I don't really understand it, and I keep watching this video, and a lot of them aren't even of the same one that I have, and they're all made a little bit differently, and so I'm trying to figure this out, and eventually, I realized, man, I don't think I can really trust any of those. And, I've, and I 
go back to the old-fashioned way, and here's the old-fashioned way these days. I Googled it. You know, because YouTube is the new way, Google's the old way. And so I Googled it, and in the process of Googling it, I was able to find the service manual, the actual service manual issued by the manufacturer to help you solve the problem, the exact problem that I was having. And so I was able to go through step by step, and eventually, after having to run to Lowe's four times, I was able to actually get the gear fixed, and now I can, once again, mow my lawn. So it's great. And all of this, that's not, that's not worth applauding. That was like my whole day yesterday. But the key was I had to have the trustworthy source, right? Had all these sources, but could I trust them? And I needed the trustworthy source. And once I had it, I had something that I could be certain about. I had something that I could move forward based upon. And so tonight we're looking at the question, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust it? I mean, there's lots of questions when it comes to the Bible. You know, a lot of people have, have questions about its reliability. I mean, we don't have the originals. We don't have the original copy that was written down. So how, how can we know that it's reliable? You know, there's, aren't there all sorts of variants and haven't things changed over time? And wasn't it just a big game of telephone that eventually somebody wrote down? And how could that have possibly been accurate? Because how many games of telephone have you played in your life? I mean, and wasn't it really just put together by people who were trying to consolidate power around a belief structure that put them in positions of authority over other people? I mean, these are all very real questions. What about the Old Testament and the New Testament? I mean, God, the Old Testament, I mean, clearly can't be the same as the New Testament. These questions that make the Bible a challenge. Not to mention the fact that it's been written over the course of over 3,000 years. And the cultural differences over all the time and the language differences. Can we trust the Bible? And this evening, I'm certainly going to make the case or try to make the case that yes, we can trust the Bible. And I'm going to give you a, a couple of different reasons, but I mean, I'll tell you what, there's so much stuff out there. I'd encourage you to, if this is a question you have, there are lots of great responses because I cannot possibly cover every objection and challenge that folks have with the scripture tonight. So what I'm going to offer you is that we can trust the Bible partially because the Bible offers within it its own tests that can test its, and, and if it's verifiable. It, that it offers its own proof. I, we're going to offer that it is reliable historically, and also going to offer that it, it, it is reliable because of those in our own lives. All right, and so we're going to jump right in, and actually we'll begin with the passage that we read earlier, that Pastor Christian read earlier, from Ezekiel 26. Because Ezekiel 26 was written by Ezekiel. I know, isn't that good? I love it when it works out the way it's supposed to. So Ezekiel was a prophet, and he had been taken captive into Babylon, and he, he was prophesying first over the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of the people of God, and then over many other nations, and then he was prophesying a great hope later on, and that's kind of the overall structure. But here in this section on the nations, he zeroes in on this little city, well, not so little in that day, the city of Tyre. In chapter 26, as we read earlier, Ezekiel is focused in on Tyre. Now, ancient Tyre was the capital of the Phoenician Empire, which was the world empire at the time. 
And it was an incredible city. It was called the Queen of the Seas. It was all the way on the far eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, but its fleet was incredible, and so it controlled the seas. Nope, not that one yet. Thanks. So, so it, it controlled the seas. And it became incredibly wealthy, mostly because it was able to trade along the seaports, and it traded heavily in purple dye because it would make the purple dye out of the mollusks that were right there in the sea because it's right on the Mediterranean. And, and that was an incredibly expensive process. And so it became wealthy. And on top of it, it had these huge walls, huge walls, impenetrable walls. No, no army had successfully been able to conquer, though armies had come and tried to conquer it over so, so many years. Part of it was it had these huge walls. Part of it was it was socked in on, on the east side by these rocky mountains that made it difficult for armies to cover and these rag, jagged cliffs. And so it was kind of nestled into this little spot where it was totally safe and secure. Well, in Ezekiel 26, God proclaims judgment against Tyre. Because Tyre is somehow in a position, a good position, because the people of God, Jerusalem, has, has suffered. And they're gloating about it. And they're proud and they're arrogant. And so God proclaims very clear judgment. And what we, what we read earlier, he said this, Many nations will come against you like waves on the sea. They'll destroy your walls. They'll pull down your towers. They'll scrape you away all your rubble away and make you a bare rock. Out in the sea, you'll become a place for fishermen to throw their nets. And the settlements on your mainland will be ravaged. So that's where we stopped. This is what God has proclaimed, but he keeps going. He keeps going, and in verse seven, he gets more specific. He says, actually, it's gonna be King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who's going to come against you from the north. And in 586, B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar, sure enough, goes to attack Tyre. And he says that your walls are going to shake as the horses and chariots come in because Nebuchadnezzar had this amazing army as the Babylonian Empire was growing in power and was, was seeking to, to expand and wanted to take Tyre out. And so your walls are going to shake and he's going to tear, he's going he's to ravage your mainland. All the cities, these little villages, right? Because the way it worked was there were these huge walls, which was the city, but outside the city were all like the villages where the farmers lived and uh, you know, they'd make the food, you know, they'd bring the food into the city and the city would protect them. And so God's promising, yeah, all of those mainland villages, they're going to get destroyed. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up these siege works, you know, this huge mound essentially, and he's going to beat down your walls with battering rams. He's going to demolish your weapons, demolish your towers. So this is everything that God's saying is going to happen very specifically by King Nebuchadnezzar. And sure enough, in 586, King Nebuchadnezzar goes, and for 13 years, King Nebuchadnezzar sieged Tyre. Why did it take so long? Well, remember, the, those walls were huge. They'd never been penetrated before. And so it took time. And they had to build those siege works, and they had to build it up, and they, they kept attacking, and they kept attacking, and, well, then they weren't getting through the walls. And so they did what most of the time you do when you're laying siege to a city in those days. You just surrounded it, and you waited. Because here's the thing. If you wait long enough, they run out of food, don't they? Because the food was out with the farmers. 
And so if you wait long enough, they'll come out or they'll be dead and you could just go in and take the city, it'll be fine. But here was the thing, Tyre was the queen of the seas and she had a fleet and was able to bring food and supplies from the water side, didn't have to rely on the mainland side. And so it took 13 years for King Nebuchadnezzar to lay siege to the city. But on top of it, the city itself, you can show the next one real quick, that picture again. So the city itself was actually divided into two parts. There's this part out here in the water, and then there was the mainland part, okay? There was, so it was actually kind of one city, but it had two main sections. All right, you can take that picture away. And there were huge walls on the island, huge walls on the mainland of the city. And so over those 13 years, the people also started ferrying over to the island. And eventually, after 13 years, they basically had hunkered down in the island fortress. And they let King Nebuchadnezzar have the mainland city. And sure enough, he destroys the walls with battering rams. It's recorded in history tears the walls apart, rides his horses and his chariots into the city, just like God had said. Tore down the weapons, tore down the towers, tore down the walls, tore down the houses, destroyed everything, took plunder back. Because here's the thing, there was water between him and the island city. And he had an army, but he didn't have a navy. And so, in one way, Nebuchadnezzar had won, but on another hand, he hadn't completed the job. And so he goes back home after, after destroying the city. Now, some people look at this and they go, this is why I don't trust the Bible. Because clearly, clearly he could not have known that these things were going to happen before it happened. So he must have actually, because he had been taken back to Babylon... He must have been hearing the reports from the battlefield of what had been happening over those years, and he was writing them down and pretending that he had gotten it right. And certainly there's no real evidence for that. It's just an assumption because out, of, out of a desire to kind of reject that the possibility that God had spoken to Ezekiel and had told what he was going to do. But even, here's the beauty, even if that's exactly what happened, even if Ezekiel was writing down what was happening on the battlefield, he couldn't have been reporting what happens next. Because in verses 7 through 11 that I was just telling you about, it's talking about he, Nebuchadnezzar, over and over again, it says he, 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 he is going to do these things. He will do all these things. But in verse 12, it makes a shift to they. Who's the they? Well, the they goes back to the many nations. They will now plunder. They will loot. They will take over where Nebuchadnezzar has ended. And he goes on in verses 12, 13, and 14 to say this. They're going to break the walls. They're going to throw the stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. They will make a bare rock. It will become, you make you a bare rock, you'll become a place to spread fishing nets, and you will never be rebuilt. See, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't done all of the things that we read about in our first six verses earlier, had he? He'd only destroyed the main city, but now, like the waves on the sea, another na other armies would come. And now, here comes, in 332 B.C., 250 years after Nebuchadnezzar, comes Alexander the Great. Ever heard of him? I guess he was pretty great. So Alexander the Great begins conquering and sets his eyes on Tyre. I mean, and he moves fast. He's got this incredible army. 
and, and moves in on Tyre. Well, here's the thing. Tyre's now basically just the island city, the island fortress. And he's got this amazing army, so what is he going to do? He wants to take this city quickly. He sees it as the key, and once Tyre falls, actually the reality is once Tyre falls, much of the land south of there also falls. And so he gets an idea. He starts taking the stones, the timber, the rubble from the mainland city that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed, and he starts throwing it into the sea. And he takes these huge logs from the, from the mountains, and he drives them into the sea, and he creates a causeway. And if we go back to that last picture that you were seeing, you can see between the mainland, up on the top there, and the island, Alexander the Great had created a causeway where he was able to advance bit by bit by bit, following the exact detail of what God had said he would do, throwing the remains of the city into the sea. And of course, it, it keeps going forward, and obviously they're not, they're not blind from the island, and they realize what's going on, and they, as, as Alexander begins making greater and greater progress, at one point, Alexander rolls out these incredible siege towers with catapults on it, and, and starts firing them at the wall, and so the, the Tyrannians, Ty, Tyrannians, whatever, you get it, the people in the island, they get a great idea. They take one of their old ships and they light it on fire and they ram it into the, the causeway. And they blow up the towers, these giant siege work towers, and you know, they, they feel like they've got them back on the run. And Alexander, of course, won't be kept at bay. He comes back. He actually had conquered some neighboring cities and had a little fleet of his own. And so he called in the fleet to help manage the other ships. They kept building the causeway to eventually the point where they were able to get the siege works up against the wall. And they breached the island fortress for the first time. And they broke, broke its walls, tore it down. And then history says he devastated the city. Wiped it out. Scraped it bare like a rock. And over the years, that causeway has grown up as other debris and things from the ocean. It didn't get washed out. It's now created essentially a peninsula. It's no longer an island. And there's lots of fishing that happens right off the end of the peninsula now that was the island. And the reality is the, this great city was never really rebuilt. Is it building up? Sure. But it's a shadow of, it, of its glory, a shadow of what it once was. And none of the parts from the old city could possibly have been used because they're all underwater. And so, how could Ezekiel have known in such detail. What was going to happen? This has been demonstrated historically, which is one of the great parts about it. That all the details you can go look up among historians who are not followers of Jesus. And you can hear. How did he know? Unless the, the scripture has offered a way to test itself. Unless God has offered a way to say, is the Bible reliable? Can you trust what you find here? 
Well, here's a prophecy. Here's something that is going to be predicted into the future, and it comes to pass in incredible detail. And I, I mean, I, I don't even think I've done all of it justice. I actually first learned about this prophecy from a guy named Mike Winger, who, uh, who runs BibleThinker.org, does a lot of great videos, very thoughtful, grounded, biblical uh, guy. And so you, you can, he's got actually, I think it's a 20-part series on evidence for the Bible. So if you've got questions around this, he's got some incredible content that you can go and watch. But God has offered proof. You can test it. Is it reliable? And so, yeah, okay, fine. That's okay about history. It's okay about the Old Testament maybe, but most of the attacks on the Bible actually come on the New Testament. And I think that part partially is because Jesus is so polarizing that uh, the effort is there to try to pull it apart. And so can we, can we trust the accounts of Jesus? Are they reliable? And I want to open to, to Luke chapter 1, and we'll read the first four verses in chapter 1. And this is... This is from Luke, and he says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who have from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So here's, here's Luke. And Luke, as we understand through history and through other, other references in the scripture, is that Luke is a physician. He actually writes the most technically sound Greek in the New Testament. I mean, so he's a very well-educated guy. And we see right at the beginning of what he's written, he gives this very clear, clear understanding of what did he go and do. Well, he came, he's writing something for Theophilus, whoever this guy is, we're not exactly sure, but apparently somebody who was worth writing to. And he says that, hey, I've taken, a lot of people have done this. And so there's a lot of accounts out there about what happened with Jesus. And just as they were handed down to us, by those who were the eyewitnesses, man, I'm going to carefully, I've investigated everything, I've talked to the eyewitnesses, and so I'm going to write an orderly account as well. See, I love this. I love this because Luke tells us up front, here's what he's done, here's his sources, and he tells us that he's going to lay out something that is orderly so that it can be understood. You know, What's great about this is that it makes it certainly reliable, A, on the basis of, of the eyewitness testimony. And that's really so much of the New Testament is eyewitness testimony or is the recording of the eyewitnesses who were there, right? Like, so Luke is writing somewhere between probably 70 and 80 AD, so less than 50 years after the events of Jesus's life. And so he's saying, hey, I've talked to the eyewitnesses I've seen the accounts that they've presented, and so I'm putting this all together. And so he's essentially saying to Theophilus and to anybody else after him, go talk to him if you want to. 
if you're not sure, if you don't think I've recorded what is appropriate and right, if you don't think this is accurate, you can go talk to him yourself. Because within 50 years, many were still living. You know? And so it would have been easy. And they could have asked certainly the eyewitnesses who would have been favorable uh, in terms of what Luke was presenting, but it's also there were so many that would not, that were against Christianity, against the Christian faith, who wouldn't have wanted Luke to be reliable. And so Luke couldn't have just willy-nilly put something out there without there having been ramifications from those who were there who would challenge it. And so he's offering us something that we can grab onto because they were there. Luke himself wasn't there, but he's talked to all of these folks who were there. And it's not just that that he was there. I mean, because in the other cases, some of them were there, right? John, we get the, the book of John. John was there. John tells us very clearly. He was walking with Jesus from the early days. He was the disciple Jesus loved. That was his term for himself. And you get John's perspective, which ends up being quite different from Luke's perspective. Well, why are they so different? Or don't they contradict themselves? Well, see, because that's a big argument. You can't rely on the Bible because there's so many contradictions. I mean, here's one, just one example of a contradiction. In the resurrection accounts, if you go to Matthew's account of the resurrection, Matthew talks about an angel sitting on the stone of the tomb, right? Above the tomb. Well, John, in John's account of the resurrection, he talks about two angels, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body had been. Well, so which was it? One or two? See, there's a contradiction. At least that's how the argument goes. We can't rely on the Bible because, look, they can't even get their story straight. Well, but there's, this is an example of, this, of the many kinds of contradictions, or at least the supposed contradictions of the Bible that, that people try to point out, but there's so many ways that these can be reconciled. Because Matthew doesn't say there was one angel, he said there was an angel. He doesn't try to make it a singular, like, hey, there's only one, so don't try to make it two. He just says there's an angel sitting above the tomb. Like, he wasn't necessarily concerned about the number. John's pretty clear. Yeah, there was two, one at the head and one at the foot. Well, there could have been 45 outside, right? There, there could have been two in the corner. There could have been one, you know, bouncing on John's head. We don't, like, he's just not describing all of the things. And often, we, those who are, are struggling with the Bible, look for the reasons why it shouldn't make sense rather than the reasons why it might. And John was there. Well, I mean, but this is crazy. I mean, look at all the stuff. I mean, there's no way. This must just be an incredible story that, that was made. And, and certainly people think that it's a great, a great story, a great legend, you know, and, and meets somebody's purposes. But the thing is, that's not, that's not how legends were written. That's not how fiction was written. In, the, in Jesus's day. If you go read fiction of Jesus's day, it's, it's, it's not like this with the kind of mundane details of the day-to-day movements. They're epics. There's these incredible tales, but they, this is far too much like our modern day understanding of fiction, right? When you read a book today that's fiction, I mean, unless it's like totally fantasy and, and you get to suspend all the rules of reality, right? If you read any normal work of fiction, you get an incredible amount of detail, don't you? As if they're reporting to you something that really happened. 
And so if you didn't know that you picked it up from the fiction, it, it might be a memoir. It, it might be an autobiography. It might be a biography. Right? But we, we, oh, you picked it out of the fiction section. We know that it's a made-up story. But it has the same incredible kind of detail. Well, that's not how fiction was written then. As a matter of fact, my understanding is that, that our, our kind of modern novel didn't really even begin until like the 1800s with that kind of level of detail. And C.S. Lewis was a, a professor, and I know I've quoted him a number of times, but he was actually a, a literature professor before he was a, a theologian. So he was a professor of English literature, and this is what he says about the Gospel of John. He says, either this is reportage, meaning he's reporting what he saw because he was there at the time, or, or else, some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. In other words, it had never happened before. It didn't happen again for like 1,800 years. And so somehow, miraculously, if somebody had invented this at, you know, at or around or sometime after, usually the argument is that the scriptures weren't actually written for a couple hundred years after, but the, the evidence for that is really sparse. It's not fair. But the argument is a couple hundred years after, somebody wrote this incredible story. Well, then they were truly ahead of their time. It's reliable because it's based on eyewitness testimony of people who were there. Some other things that make it reliable is because you know, some struggle with the reliability because they argue that uh, these texts were plucked and, and they were put together by a council of people who, who really, they were just trying to consolidate power. And that's what a lot of the, the Bible is about. And, and really, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because these texts you probably wouldn't have picked in those days if you were trying to consolidate power for yourself. I mean, if we just look at the witness of the text themselves. They would be thrown out, especially just the resurrection accounts alone, because there's no way you would make it that women were the first ones to show up at the empty tomb, because they weren't credible in that day. They weren't allowed to give testimony in court. Like, I didn't make that up, sorry, if that's news to you. It's not my rule. I'm reporting to you what was. So, if you were trying to build the credibility of your story so that you could get others to buy in, so that it would help you in your position of power and authority over them, you wouldn't choose women. That's ridiculous. And, and then you look at actually how it portrays the main characters. And if you're trying to say, we're in the line of the apostles, we're with that kind of authority, look at us, we're that great. Look at how the apostles are portrayed. I mean, constantly sticking their foot in their mouth, never understanding what Jesus was actually doing, running away, afraid at the moment when they're, they said very clearly, yes, we will stand and we will fight and we will die with you. No, we're going to run away. And so if you were trying to be in the line of authority, like why would you claim that? Why would you claim to be in that line? What about your, your hero of the whole story, how it portrays Jesus even? I mean, because look at, look at Jesus. Not very triumphant. I mean, really, he, 
he goes to a garden and, and he weeps before, before God the night of his great big mission, the thing that he was brought to earth to accomplish, that he was here to do. He goes and cries and asks, hey, can we, can we do something else? Because I don't want to do that. You, this is not the picture you would paint of an exalt, the exalted one who somehow you're going to use to get other people underneath you and, and your authority. And so you get this authentic witness of the Scripture because it was from eyewitnesses who were there, who were themselves the ones failing. I mean, Mark, the tradition has it that Mark is written down basically as Peter dictated it. Well, do you think Peter might have skipped the part where he turned on Jesus? I think Peter might have skipped some of the other parts where he told Jesus that, yeah, you, no, you can't do that. You know, you might have left that part out, make yourself look a little better. But it was the eyewitnesses who were there. And the thing is, we have so many fragments and, and chunks of manuscripts. And I mean, there are thou- literally thousands of pieces of the New Testament that we, we actually have. And this is amazing because it actually lets us compare all of them. Compare that to like some of the other works of antiquity. And and you get like the Iliad that has like 600 and some, I think is the number, copies that are preserved. We've got thousands of the New Testament text. And so we can compare them and we can contrast them and we can see, oh man, when they were copying over here, oops, they skipped a line. Does that make it any less reliable? Actually, no, it makes it more reliable because we have this whole, no, whole bunch that we can compare it to so that we can make sure we get to the right one. It's reliable because God has allowed it to, to continue to be copied over and over and over again. And there's so many more things that we can point to about its reliability. But the last thing I want to say is it's reliable in our lives. See, Luke was saying, hey, I, I want to, a lot of people have taken, drawn up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, but I'm going to do this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The things fulfilled among us, giving the certainty. And that language of fulfilled has, it points us to prophecy. Just like Ezekiel 26, just like the prophecy of Tyre. And over and over again in, in the Old Testament, we have prophecy upon prophecy. If the prophecy of Tyre was right, could the prophecy of the Messiah be right too? If the prophecy of Tyre was correct, could the prophecy of Isaiah 53 be correct? Where it says this so clearly, he was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, tr- he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah looking out on the horizon of history saying, there's going to come a time, and there's going to be someone who's going to come and suffer in such a way, but he's going to suffer for you, to take on your transgression, to take on your iniquity, so that you can finally have the peace that you're looking for. 
the prophecy of Tyre was, uh, was right? Could the prophecy of this Messiah be correct? And then you get Luke who writes the account so that Theophilus can absolutely be certain that that prophecy was for him and is for you. See, God gives this gift that is the Bible that we can trust. We can trust it because it's historically reliable. We can trust it because it, it, it reinforces its own, it gives its own proof. Internally, you can test it. And you can also test it as you stand on it with confidence that the Jesus that is portrayed here is the one who was despised and rejected for you so that you could finally have peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift that is the Bible. Your word conveyed to us over time. Your word that you offer to be tested that is out there. And there's things that haven't been fulfilled yet and so many that have. And so we can, we can have a certainty and a confidence that those things left undone will still be done. God, we thank you for the reliability of the witnesses that walked with you, that knew you on earth, Jesus. Thank you for their courage to write down with honesty and integrity even their own failure so that we could have a confidence that what's recorded has been reported of who you are, of what you've done and what you've done for us in your own journey of being despised, rejected, suffering and dying so that we could have peace. Lord, may you continue to grow our confidence in you through your word. Thank you.